0: Welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Meet them, greet them, treat them, and street them. Today's date is July 6, 2023, and I'm your skeptical host, Ken Milne. The title of today's podcast is, Same as it ever was, Tammy Flu for Influenza. And our guest skeptic is Dr. Anand Nathan. He's an assistant professor of emergency medicine at Staten Island University Hospital, and he's also the managing editor of MRAP and associate editor of Rebel EM. Welcome back to the SGEM, Swami.
1: Oh, it's great to be here, Ken. It's been it has been, it's been a while. It's, it's been a minute since we got to do an SGEM. I mean, we get to chat every month because we do our work over on EMA, but it's been a while since I got to uh, come on your show, so thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, it's like COVID time, right? It's just all a blur the last three years, but I actually looked it up, and it was two years ago. Two years ago, you were on, and you were talking TXA. For epistaxis, that was the NOPAC trial published in Academic Emergency Medicine, and it reported no statistical difference for their primary outcome. Now, there has been another randomized control trial on this issue published in AEM last year from Iran reporting that TXA was superior to usual care for adult patients presenting with anterior epistaxis. So, Swami, what are you doing these days? TXA or no TXA? I feel like this
1: is gonna be like what we see with Bell palsy and the antivirals. Like every year, another study comes out that pushes the meter in one direction or the other. And I think we're gonna see the same thing. The TXA, the pendulum is gonna swing back and forth. It's not my first line therapy. I don't think it ever was my first line therapy, but I still do use it. So if I've applied pressure and I've done all the usual stuff and I'm still not getting good hemostasis, then I'll put some TXA in and I'm more likely to reach for it in patients who are on blood thinners or antiplatelets, clopidogrel, all that kind of nonsense. But um, it did change my practice because I was underwhelmed by the utility of TXA. NOPAC is definitely the best study that we have done. So uh, I shy away from it a little bit more. I don't use it as a first line for sure.
0: Well, since I've got you and we're talking TXA, you know that the patch trial was just published and we covered that with our good friend Salim Razai uh, on the SGM last week. And we roped in our other good friend, Simon Carley from St. Emlyn's to opine on the topic. Uh, it didn't show any superiority for better functional outcome at six months. That was the primary outcome. Now, there was some mortality benefit seen at a secondary outcome. So again, what's the SWAMI doing when it comes to trauma? TXA or no TXA?
1: I am still giving TXA in trauma. I still think that the CRASH-2 data is driving my management here. And the thing that I kind of keep in the back of my head is, can we expect TXA to have a benefit in terms of a six-month outcome, is that asking too much of this drug when really what we want is that immediate or, or near immediate hemostasis, better hemostasis? So I am still giving TXA, but can as with all things, whether it be epistaxis, whether it be trauma, I am open to changing my mind as more literature comes out.
0: Oh, what a great skeptic you've become. That's awesome. You <laughs> I know, learned yeah. from the
1: best. Learned from the best. <laughs> All
0: right. Well, let's get on to today's non-controversial issue and start us off with a case.
1: Obviously, tongue in cheek when you say non-controversial, but let's go with the case. I've got a 57-year-old woman with hypertension, hyperlipidemia, and type 2 diabetes who presents to the ED with fever, cough, myalgias, headache, and congestion. Ken, Stop me if you've seen this patient once or maybe 5,000 times in the last year. It is flu season. I I mean, it's not when we're recording this, but when I saw this patient, it's flu season. I've already seen 15 people with the same symptoms. Her vital signs look pretty good. She's got a little bit of a fever. She's got a temp of 38.5, heart rate's about 102, BP's 143 over 88, O2 sat's 99% on room air. She's breathing comfortably. She's got no increased work of breathing. So overall, comfortable looking patient. I send off a COVID and flu swab, the results come back positive for influenza, and she looks well enough to go home. So I counsel her that she can go home, but she asks me about the medication Tamiflu or also Tamavir, because some of her friends who have been sick recently have been given that medication by their doctors, and she wants to know if she should take it as well.
0: Well, thanks for setting the table there. Tamavir was approved by the FDA back in 1999 when people were apparently partying <laughs> uh, based on evidence from a trial funded by the maker of the drug, Roche. Safety issues popped up soon after widespread use of the drug was introduced. That included neuropsychiatric effects as well as the more common nausea and vomiting. The Cochrane Collaboration published analyses of the available data back in 1999 but then they updated it in 2003 and 6. In 2009 the Cochrane group questioned Roche about the completeness of the data set and after 4 years of requests finally got access to all the data in 2013 and updated their review in 2014 and we covered that systematic review and meta-analysis on SGEM 98
1: I think that background is really important Ken because I think people forget or They weren't practicing at this time when all of this was going on and the Cochrane group was asking and asking and asking and Roche was just kind of like, nah, we don't have to give you that data set. But when we got all of that data together, we looked at that 2014 Cochrane review, they did find an improvement in time to first alleviation in symptoms in adults by about 17 hours. So you got 17 hours of less symptoms, It wasn't really less symptoms, but 17 hours earlier, you started to feel better But that was coupled with some side effects, including the things you mentioned, nausea and vomiting, headaches, those neuropsychiatric effects, which the neuropsychiatric effects were only seen in about one in 100 patients. But Ken, that's a lot. One in 100 is a lot when you're giving this drug to millions and millions of people.
0: Yeah. And so what you're getting on the potential benefit side is maybe better a day earlier, so less than a day earlier. And the flip side of that, the potential harms are nausea, vomiting and headaches and maybe some neuropsychiatric effects when you're already feeling like crap. But despite these findings, the World Health Organization, the Infectious Disease Society of America, the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, they all continue to recommend the use of ulcetamavir, particularly in patients at increased risk of hospitalization and bad outcomes.
1: There was a large unblinded RCT of about 3,000 patients that was published in Lancet in 2020. And that study looked at patients presenting to their primary care physician with influenza. The results were that those treated with Oseltamivir, again, recovered about one day earlier than the control group, but again, experienced more nausea and vomiting. Ken, if I had the flu and I didn't have nausea and vomiting, and then you gave me a medication that gave me nausea and vomiting, I wouldn't be terribly happy. You guys reviewed this. That was SGEM 312. Of course, we're going to have links to all of these in the show notes for people to check out.
0: Well, they did a subgroup analysis of the Lancet RCT, and it showed older, sicker patients with comorbidities and longer previous symptom duration recovered two to three days sooner. So that that was better than just less than a day. And while this is interesting, it should be considered hypothesis-generating. And I'll remind people, there was a JAMA article previously reported that subgroup claims are often not corroborated by subsequent studies and rarely confirmed. And what I mean by rarely confirmed, because in that JAMA article, the number of subgroups that you know claim that there was some benefit that it was actually investigated and ultimately found out to be true was a nice round number, zero. And you can go back more than 30 years ago when Yusuf warned us and said quote the overall trial result is usually a better guide to the direction of the effect in a subgroup than the apparent effect observed within a subgroup end of quote
1: and let's remember that that Lancet rct where they did the subgroup analysis was unblinded and this is a relatively soft outcome all of that kind of leads to more bias and makes the results a little bit less believable but we've only really been talking about adults when we talk about children with suspected influenza and they're ill enough to be admitted to the hospital. There are some observational studies that do show an impact of oseltamivir. Again, you reviewed some of this with Dr. Dennis Wren, who's a Peds expert. You did a structured critical appraisal of that in SGM 397. And the bottom line from that episode is that we don't really have high-quality evidence to support the routine use of oseltamivir in the treatment of children admitted to the hospital with suspected influenza. But Ken, I don't know about your shop, but where I work, it's pretty standard. If the kid's sick enough to come into the hospital they're probably going to get Tamiflu.
0: And there might be a little bit of intervention bias going on there. Got to do something, Ken. Can't just stand here. <laughs> just stand there. Just stand there until you have sufficient evidence that is supported by reliable data and logical arguments. All right. What's the clinical question? Is oseltamivir tamavir
1: effective in preventing hospitalization from influenza in adults and adolescent
0: outpatients? And what reference are we using?
1: This is by Hanela et al. Evaluation of Oseltamivir used to prevent hospitalization in outpatients with influenza. A systematic review and meta-analysis, JAMA Internal Medicine 2023.
0: Yeah, so this is a recent publication, and so that's why we're reviewing it now instead of in the winter because it came out here in the summer. And it's better, you know, if we talk about it now, it'll have
1: uptake so that when the winter comes around, people know kind of what they should be doing.
0: And, you know, we're dealing with that knowledge translation window of over 10 years. I mean, if we can shorten it down to a few months just by doing social media on it. Good. Absolutely. So let's go through the Pico. What was the population? This was RCTs of outpatients 12 years and older
1: diagnosed with natural influenza infections based on clinical history and laboratory evidence. They could have a PCR or a three time increase in antibody titers at 30 days.
0: And then they excluded any observational studies. So these are all randomized control trials. What was the intervention?
1: It was Oseltamivir 75 milligrams twice a day for five days. And that was compared to placebo or standard care.
0: All right, let's go through their outcomes. What was their primary outcome?
1: This is an important one. And I think this is the right primary outcome to be looking at hospitalization during the treatment or follow-up period for any cause or duration And emergency department visits don't count. Emergency department visit is not a hospitalization. So this is how many of these patients did we admit to the hospital because we felt they were sick enough to be admitted?
0: Well, I agree. It's an important outcome. It does have some subjectivity to it, though, because your decision to admit can depend on many factors outside of just how the patient is doing as well. So um, but I did like that they only had one primary outcome. So eh, that's good. How about (laughs) secondary outcomes? They didn't really look at any. They really wanted to focus in on hospitalization, which I like.
1: Oh, that's primary then. Okay. Safety outcomes? I think it's really important for us to look at these safety outcomes because we want to know, is the possible benefit better than the possible harms? And so we have to be looking at all of these different things.
0: And it is good to see that they actually really focused on those potential harms because there is a bias to underreport harms in the literature. So it's good because you don't just want one side of the coin, potential benefits. You need that potential harm to have that informed decision with the patient. The author's conclusions were, quote, In this systematic review and meta-analysis among influenza-infected outpatients, oseltamivir was not associated with a reduced risk of hospitalization, but was associated with increased gastrointestinal adverse events. To justify continued use for this purpose, an adequately powered trial in a suitably high risk population is justified." End of quote. It's a great, great conclusion. Uh, Ken, I almost feel like we don't have to keep going,
1: but we of course will keep going. But those conclusions are pretty powerful. Was not associated with reduced risk of hospitalization. I think it's the opposite of what most clinicians believe.
0: Well, I think we have to keep going because I want to talk nerdy with you. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And and also, is it going to move the needle? Oh, this will be interesting. Does it change practice? So let's run through the quality checklist questions quickly for therapeutic systematic reviews. The first one is the clinical question. Do you think it's sensible and answerable? Absolutely. Do you think the search was detailed and exhaustive?
1: I think so. They did a really good search here.
0: They looked at
1: PubMed, Ovid, Medline, Emboss, Europe, PubMed Central, Web of Science, Cochrane Central, clinicaltrials.gov, WHO International Clinical Trial Registry. And they looked at that really from the inception of that registry until January 2022. So I think this was a pretty exhaustive search for relevant evidence.
0: And the primary studies, were they graded as high methodologic quality?
1: Here, I'm gonna to have to say no. So they used the Cochrane tool to really analyze that. And they found that while some of these trials were at low risk of bias, about nine, five of them had some concerns. One of them was a high concern of bias. So it's a little bit of a mixed picture here.
0: Was the assessment of studies reproducible? Yes. Do you think that outcome was clinically relevant of hospitalization?
1: I do. I think that the patient does care whether they have to stay in the hospital or not. What was the heterogeneity like? Oh, this was good. 0%. The heterogeneity was 0%, which is pretty fantastic.
0: You see, I have all these favorite numbers. You know that five is my favorite number (laughs) because I can count to it on one hand. 11 is my second favorite number because, of course, I like to go to 11. But I'm starting to think zero has got to be my third favorite number. Zero is a good number. It's a nice round number. Absolutely. I can remember that one. Yeah. So the treatment effect was it large enough and precise enough to be clinically significant. Uh, No,
1: it was not because there really wasn't a treatment effect here. All right. And how about funding or
0: conflicts of interest?
1: So Dr. McDonald, one of the authors here, reported being an investigator in an inpatient oseltamivir study. No other disclosures were reported. 12 of the included 15 RCTs were sponsored by a pharmaceutical company. So the parent study didn't really have a lot of conflicts of interest, but the individual studies obviously did.
0: Yeah. And so that's one of the issues of... uh systematic reviews is you need to go back to the primary studies and actually look at those and see what those conflicts of interests were, because you can't necessarily control for the biases that may have been introduced from the primary studies into that systematic review.
1: And again, I think we agree on this. The fact that 12 of 15 were sponsored by a pharmaceutical company tends to bias the results towards benefit for the drug. Here, we didn't see a benefit. So that's really important for us to know as well.
0: Yeah, it makes me believe the results even more because I think the bias would have been in the direction of finding a benefit. So for the results, they searched and found 15 randomized control trials to be included in the review. Now, seven of the 15 were peer-reviewed and published. But this is interesting. Eight of them, eight of the 15 randomized control trials were unpublished clinical study reports from Roche Pharmaceuticals. The mean age was 45 years and 54% were female. So, I mean, what was the key result? All right, let's take this one more time. No
1: statistical difference in hospitalization, whether you got Oseltamivir or not. So yeah, that
0: primary outcome was hospitalizations. Can you put a number to it?
1: Yeah, I had a risk ratio of 0.77 with a 95% confidence interval that crosses one 0.47 to 1.27, a pretty tight confidence interval, but clearly crosses one showing no statistically significant difference.
0: Yeah. And there was no statistical difference in older patients, no statistical difference in those at higher risk for hospitalizations. Now that was their primary outcome. We know they didn't have any secondary outcomes. How about safety?
1: All right. So we look at the safety outcomes. They had increased nausea that had a risk ratio of 1.43, and that was statistically significant. They also found increased vomiting, 1.83 for the risk ratio, also statistically significantly different.
0: But they didn't find any statistical increase in serious adverse events, but it's no fun having nausea and vomiting. But we do like to talk nerdy, and I will have how many points? Ooh, I'm going to go ahead and guess five. We're going to have five points. Yeah, it's got to be five or 11 because I'm yeah. not going to have zero. <laughs> All right. So uh, you go with number one.
1: All right. So the age of the patients here is pretty important. You mentioned before the mean age was about 45 years, and that's a young relatively healthy cohort. And maybe that's not where this drug would have the benefit. Maybe we should be targeting it to older people with more comorbid conditions that are at higher risk for admission to the hospital. But they did do a couple of subgroup analyses. You mentioned that as well. When they looked at patients greater than or equal to 65, there was no statistically significant difference in that risk ratio. It was 0.99, no difference in hospitalizations there. And then when you look at the group under 65, obviously still no statistically significant difference. So I think that even though the mean age was relatively young, the subgroup doesn't really show any potential for benefit.
0: And the second nerdy point was about higher risk patients. It's not just age that adds an extra risk. Um, They also did a pre-specified high risk group based on comorbidities. And this too failed to show a statistical difference in hospitalizations for the subgroup. So when you looked at the high risk groups, Their risk ratio was 0.9 with a confidence interval that spanned one, and it was a fairly wide confidence interval. And then when you looked at the low-risk patients, because there must have been more in there because the confidence interval was a little tighter, um, the risk ratio, again, wasn't statistically significant.
1: All right. Nerdy point number three was about sponsored versus non-sponsored. And we mentioned this a little bit up top. The industry-sponsored trials were showed less likely to be hospitalized in general. So the patients in those studies were less likely to be hospitalized. So the authors gave A couple of possible explanations for why they found this difference. This included things like viral cultures used instead of PCR to confirm infection, lower resistance when those industry-funded studies were done. Remember that some of these studies were way back in 1999, 2000, or even earlier, and the virus has probably changed and may not actually be susceptible to oseltamivir the same way it was back then. So all of this kind of feeds into our recommendations and what we're seeing in the data.
0: And then the fourth nerdy point was about publication bias. You can do a visual inspection of the funnel plot and see that it's somewhat asymmetrical, suggesting publication bias. However, when you do the Egger test, it wasn't statistically significant. And I'll I'll throw that funnel plot in the show notes so you can actually see it for yourself.
1: All right, let's hit our last nerdy point, number five. This is about grade, the grading of recommendations, assessment, development, and evaluations that was used in this systematic review and meta-analysis. It found moderate certainty evidence that oseltamivir had little to no effect on hospitalization. All the included studies here were RCTs directly evaluating oseltamivir. There was imprecision in the estimate due to some wide variability between study results. Not all the studies were placebo controlled, and some of the studies were at risk of bias. So we have a grade evaluation that may not be as strong as we'd like it to be, but moderate certainty is pretty good based on the evidence and the data that we actually have to enter into that.
0: Yeah, and the, the certainty, while it was moderate, it wasn't in the direction favoring ulcetamavir. And you know that those making the claim that this treatment prevents hospitalization have the burden of proof to demonstrate their position. And without sufficient evidence, we should accept the null hypothesis of no superiority. However, that is not claiming, claiming olsatamivir does not work. Then we would be assuming the burden of proof. It is possible that olsatamivir may work, but we don't have high quality evidence to support that position. All right, Swami, it's time to comment on the author's conclusions and compare them to the s conclusions, and they're slightly different.
1: In general, I think we agree with the authors about the interpretation of the data, but we don't think an adequately powered trial in a suitably high-risk population is justified because there's really no hint of benefit even for that group. All right. What's the SGM bottom line? Same as it ever was, just like the song says, we cannot recommend the routine use of oseltamivir to reduce the risk of hospitalization amongst outpatients diagnosed with influenza.
0: So, how are you going to resolve that case you presented at the beginning where she said, Hey, how come my friends are getting this? Absolutely. And remember that this patient was in their mid 50s, had a couple of
1: comorbid conditions that maybe puts them at a little bit higher risk category. So, we explained to the patient that the data tells us she may have a slightly shorter course of influenza if she takes oseltamivir, but that it won't prevent the need for hospitalization. Additionally, it does come with the increased risk of nausea, vomiting, and neuropsychiatric effects, which she's not currently having. So based on this, we advise that I probably wouldn't take the drug, and the patient agrees. She doesn't really want to run the risk of developing nausea and vomiting when she's already feeling kind of lousy, and 16 to 24 hours doesn't really seem like enough of a benefit for her. So she agrees to schedule a close follow-up with her family physician, and in the meantime, we order her some chicken soup.
0: Oh, chicken soup. Comfort food. All right. So how are you going to take this and clinically apply it? This is a really
1: tough one, Ken, because we do have these organizations, the WHO, the CDC, and the IDSA all saying that we should be giving this, but it doesn't seem that there's enough benefit of Oseltamivir to really be giving it to such a broad swath of the population and running the risk for all of those harms that we clearly see that are very consistent across studies. So Despite the fact that these professional organizations say we should be given it, I disagree and I don't think we should. So from a clinical application, when we enter flu season this winter, I am not going to be using Oseltamivir for the vast majority of patients I see with influenza.
0: Yeah, so the guidelines, you know, they guide our care, they inform our care, but they shouldn't dictate our care. They're supposed to guide it. It's right there in the word. So, you know, you still have to look at the original data yourself and the original evidence isn't great. And then of course, use your clinical judgment and share that information with the patient and let them make a shared decision and decide what's important to them. If 17 hours is better, sooner is important to them and they don't care about nausea and vomiting, or they say, I've got a gut like an iron steel trap (laughs) and I never throw up. Okay, or if they say oh my goodness i i i just can't stand the feeling of being nauseous or sick to my stomach you know so what's important to them what do they value what do they prefer really important in that evidence based medicine framework what are you going to tell the patient though at the bedside
1: this is really important too is how we phrase these things so i would tell the patient you have the flu And there is a medication that can shorten your illness by somewhere between 16 and 24 hours, but it's not gonna prevent you getting hospitalized. And it does come with an increased risk of developing nausea and vomiting, and it's gonna cost you some money. And Kenny, in our little script here, you put that it's gonna cost you about 20 bucks, but in the US, that's pretty variable. It's really gonna depend on your insurance and how much it's gonna cost you. And often I can't tell the patient how much it's actually gonna cost.
0: All right, it's time to announce the Keener Contest winner. Last week's winner was Scott Luce. He knew that TXA was first made in 1962 by two Japanese researchers by the last name of Okamoto. What's the question this week?
1: Well, we are looking at the treatment of flu with oseltamivir, but even better is to prevent flu completely. So a universal flu vaccine trial has started using an mRNA platform. Is it a phase one, two, or three trial?
0: Oh, phasers on stun. So if you know what phase the trial is in looking for a universal flu vaccine using that new mRNA platform that was used to develop the COVID vaccine, then send an email to thesgem at gmail.com with Keener in the subject line. The first correct answer will receive a cool skeptical prize. Well, thanks Swami. I hope we don't go another two years and I hope you have a safe and healthy flu season. Absolutely. I uh, can't wait to be back on. And yes, we are going to
1: cut down, just like we're cutting down the knowledge translation window. We're going to cut down the window for us recording. Okay. So give us the SGM tagline. Remember to be skeptical of anything you learn, even if you heard it on the Skeptic Guide to Emergency Medicine.
0: Talk to everyone next week.